Hello, everyone. Uh, it is my distinct pleasure to have as a guest Chris Whitney. Hey, Dan. Hello, Chris. Yeah, nice to see you again. Yeah. Chris is, uh, <laughs> as I was writing these questions, it occurred to me that he is almost as close as the most interesting person in the world. He traveled many different paths. One of the paths that you traveled is as a technical contributor versus manager. Let's start with that angle first. Okay. Technical versus managerial. I, I started as an engineer, obviously. I mean, that was my, my career. I did my first degree in computer science and then my master's in information systems, specializing in, in AI. And so, like most people in research, I started off as an engineer. Mm -hmm. But um, very quickly, I think it's one of those things that the grass is always greener on the other side. So mm -hmm. I've always switched between more technical IC roles and managerial roles. You know, when you're a technical engineer, IC, you sometimes get fed up with all of the challenges. Why is my, why is my, why is my demo, why is my prototype not making any of the products? So you, you flip over for a while, then you go over and start doing that. Then you, then you realize all of the politics that's involved, so you switch backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. So I've always switched back. But I think one of the things I've been pretty fortunate about is when I've switched backwards and forwards, I've kind of like got um, greater in scope, either greater in my, my research role, in, in what I can do, the scale of what I can do or in the areas of responsibility. I never get hung up on titles. I mean, titles are like emperors and kings. They come and go. Yep. It's really about what you can achieve with the, with the resources you have at your disposal, I think, is the most, the most critical thing. It's the impact that comes. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's the impact. It's, it's the impact you make on people's life, how they remember you, how you think about you. Um, I don't think anyone's going to put a statue of me up in Palo Alto Square, but you know I've, we've done a lot of things mm -hmm. together in you know inside HP and, and various other organizations. So it's it's what you it's what you can achieve rather than the title. So another road that you travel back and forth was between R and D. So you started in number of labs, mm -hmm. uh, not just yeah. HP labs where you spend quite a bit of time, but also BT labs, Marconi labs, yep. and others. Right. So so how is it different doing research? versus doing the real products? I think an, an interesting way to look at it um, is when you spend a lot of time in the research labs, you, you get deeper and deeper and deeper. So you tend, to, you tend to narrow in focus, you go deeper in specializations. That's a typical thing to do because you know, the more time you spend, the more expert you come, the more, the more focused you become. Um, and I think that, that's great, but I think at some point you've got to be able to come back up again. And I think that's what working in a BU allows you to do is to actually take a breather and actually resurface a bit and find out how the, the, the focus you're doing can be more applicable. So I've, I've always found that beneficial because otherwise you can, get, you can get fairly blinkered and fairly heads down and then time passes, time passes, and then you look around and you're wondering really where are you going with, with these things. So I think, I think it's important to, you know, to, to, to spend, spend time in the labs, but also get out, and I hate to use the world, the, the real world, but to try to find out which organization is actually going to take your ideas and your techniques and your patterns and your algorithms forward and find the role you can help in actually doing that. Because I think it makes you a more rounded person. Mm -hmm. So you bear some fruits, but then you want to have some products out of it. Absolutely, no absolutely, you know. absolutely. Yeah. So the third road, or you know, m multiple roads. Actually, a lot of us traveled across the continents. You know, <laughs> I came from Europe, I ended up here in United States. But but you didn't stop here. You you know, from Europe to United I States, went all the way you around. kept all the way around, <laughs> and then you came back. Even. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about uh, that trajectory. Yeah, I think early career. I mean, like, like you, Dan. I mean, basically, I mean, we came from from Europe, Eastern Europe, and we ended up in in the U.S. And uh, so obviously, I'm I'm European. 
I think I can still call myself European until the end of the month. I mean, then yeah. being EU. The, EU, yeah, for EU. So I came from that background, and um, you know, I worked a lot in France and Italy. I met my wife, Italian, in, in, in Germany and the like, as you as you tend to do when you're when you're working with European research labs, because you do a lot of work with the universities, etc. And then I think it's natural for us to move over um, to the US. Culturally, we're more aligned, mm -hmm. and so most people do spend a period of time in the Americas. Um, some of us spend longer here. I've been in the US um, total length of time, about 22 years now. Mm -hmm. But then I wanted to go forward. I mean, quite frankly, we, we have a very limited amount of time on this earth, and you know, I'm, 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 I'm interested in, in different cultures, um, working with, with different people. Um, my family have kind of like been like that. We've been kind of like semi-nomads in terms of the work that we've done. Um, you know, like most people, I like to travel, I like to experience things. But I think in the, the industry that we're in, specifically in the research side of the industry that we're in, it's multicultural, it's diverse, it's, it's ethnic. And so to actually be able to go out to those places and, and understand, I think it's, it's very important. So I think it's, you know, it's a different aspect of what makes a, makes a good um, technology innovator mm -hmm. is, is, that, is that breadth of experience. And so, yeah, I didn't want to stop here. So, you know, I was very lucky with, with, with HP. I, I, I had the opportunity to set up HP Lab Singapore. But before that, I'd spent time in, I run a company in, in China. I've, I've worked in India mm -hmm. and many places. So, yeah, I've, I've kind of like been, been all, all around the globe. Sir, so in California, while the green is grass, once it becomes brown, you go to other Yeah, regions. yeah, I wanted to see what was in other people's rice bowls, so. <laughs> and I, you know, I, now, now I'm back um, for, 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 for many reasons, some of them personal, but I, I still spend a lot of time in, in Asia, both on some of my, my, um, my career and my, and, my, and my personal activities. Now, going back to the specific technologies, you started in AI. You were one of the yep. few now. Yep. It appears everyone's working on AI, but you actually <laughs> started and, and now you came back to your roots working in robotics. Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, other path that you traveled from yeah. AI through systems and back to? Yeah, yeah. and we come, really come, come full circle. It was one of those things, I mean, I started, I, I actually got into computer science through AI. Mm. I mean, the re reason I actually got into computer science in the first place is when I, when I was in high school, we, we, which was a, a long, long time ago, we got our first personal computer. It was a, it was a Commodore PET. Mm -hmm. I remember it was it was always run by our maths teachers. So one day was I was in the room with the math teachers, and I sat at the, I sat at the uh, this Commodore PET, and I just typed hello, and I got this thing syntax error back. Mm -hmm. And for me, I couldn't really understand because I'd watched all the TV programs, all the movies about computers, and you know Star Trek with a, with a, with a talking computer, mm -hmm. and I could never really understand why I got this thing called syntax error. Then my maths teacher said, "Well, you have to program the computer, blah 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 blah." And it's like, yeah, this is this is cool. So I learned basic and everything. I went, and that's what dragged me into computer science, but it was also, always at this thing in the back of my mind was, it'd be really nice to make these systems more intelligent, and that's kind of like what's been an, an undercurrent of, of my career. I started doing core AI research at the mm -hmm. time, neural networks, expert systems, um, cooperating, age, cooperating agents, belief, desire, intentions, all the things I, I, I published. And then as the interest in, in AI waned in the late 80s, early 90s, because basically the hype curve. Yeah, I defaulted back into more systems, always software related stuff and mm -hmm. kind of like went on that journey. But the early part of my career was working in uh, using AI to solve problems in, in defense, which I won't talk a great deal about, yeah. but in telecoms mm -hmm. with BT and, 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 and AT&T. Um, so yeah, I started out and, but I, I think the, the AI part of my career 
went down a little bit as I, as I got more into telecoms because the telecoms was the domain that I, um, I spent a lot of my, my career working in and then data centers and, um, and then cloud, et cetera, et cetera. But always the undercurrent on that is, is how to make those technologies easy to use for people and that's really what we've, what we've been doing. There's a lot of uh, discussion about AI. From your perspective, what are the, the key challenges that will enable AI to uh, deliver all these promises that are being talked about? Yeah, I mean, when, when, I, when, I, when, when I started looking back into it again a few years ago, when I started really understanding what was happening, I was seeing the AI, by the way, I hate the term AI. We, yeah. we can talk about that some other particular particular time. For me, there's there's no artificial about intelligence. It's more about intelligence of artificial systems, mm -hmm. computer systems. When I when I was seeing what was happening and how it was being more broadly adapted and the way that people were using it, I I, I noticed a sense from really what I mean about AI from when I really mm -hmm. started, which is more about the agency of systems, having systems mm -hmm. doing intelligent things rather than what AI is really being used for now, which is kind of more on the, shit, more on the, on the pattern recognition, machine learning type of things. I think it was, the, it was the follow on from big data and data science, trying to look for some of the statistical mathematical techniques to help us make sense of data. Mm -hmm. And there's some really interesting applications that are happening on AI at the moment, um, largely around the, the classification, the classification of large data sets, applying that to things like medical, cancer research, looking for identification of patents, looking for um, patents in, in, in photographs, mammographies, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some really key things happening. Um, and there's some inklings of more of the agency cognition side of AI happening. You see the way that technologies like Siri and Alexa are advancing as kind of like personal assistants. Um, so I think there's, there's, a, there's a lot of potential. I'm just hoping that the, the hype of AI is not getting ahead of itself like it did in the 80s mm -hmm. and then people start to lose, a, uh, start to disbelief in, 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 in what AI is actually capable of. So you spoke about uh, really good uses of what is so-called AI, but in practice there's a lot of neural networks mm -hmm. nowadays. What do you think will be next technology? Um, yeah, so neural networks is kind of like where it is at the moment and there's a lot of other useful techniques which you know, you've been on this journey as well as I have, Dan, that we developed in the past, you know, truth maintenance systems, expect systems, you know, case-based reasoning, all, all of those type of type of things. But neural networks solves a lot of great problems at the moment. Well, it's, it's a tool for like, solving a lot of great problems, which is the classification of large, large amounts of, of, of data. But for me, it's the, I would say it's the AI, it's a two-sided coin. There's the recognition and the cognition. Mm -hmm. So neural networks are really good for the recognition. So for example, neural networks are really good for saying you're standing in the middle of a jungle, there's a tiger looking at you and he's very hungry. The cognition side is you want to live, you've got a goal to live, you better plan yourself out and get yourself out of there. I think now what we're starting to see is more of the, the emphasis on the cognition side. And so I think the technological development will be around more of the cognition planning, the temporal reasoning side of things. You know, we can recognize something, but what does that mean? How do we put that in context? How do we act upon that? I think so it's where the, the advancements will be. Sorry. No, no, no. So to save us from the tiger, do you think that current ICT systems are sufficient? Neural networks, for example, they became pretty successful because of accelerators. Uh, what kind of next generation ICT systems do we need beyond with the end of Moore's law, new types of communication? What, what's your Yeah, take? I mean, the speeds and the feeds, I mean, if one thing that's been really great in, in kind of like this third iteration of, of AI is the speeds and feeds and the tools that are available. I mean, the internet and 
and it's so much easier to work in AI now than it was for us back in the, the 80s, just in terms of the acquisition of knowledge and the tools that we have available. But you know, to give you an example, um, the current, the current um, robot that I'm building, we have a 360 degree view of what we're doing. So we use, we use four, um, four binocular cameras to give us a 360 degree view, mm. um, which is basically because we do disparity mapping, that's, that's eight disparate images that come through. Um, that we need to cross-correlate, and you know we we like to work at 100 hertz. We can't do that. We typically work at 8 hertz at the moment. Mm -hmm. So that means we're we're processing 80 frames per second of of 1080p data. Now that takes a lot of processing power just to do that level of, of visual processing. Mm -hmm. So even with the current capabilities, I mean we're, we're using Intel i7 chips. We're using you know, things like Nvidia T4, Tesla T4, or GPU chips. It's still hard to keep up. And so, you know, I think you know, you know, Moore's law when it comes to to AI will break again. I think, you know, this is not self-serving just because I'm 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 sitting in in HP Labs again. But the 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 work that was happening around the machine was great. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that would have, could have like, been a really really key instrumental piece of technology. And I, I don't know, maybe maybe aspects of the machine is still happening inside HP. I'm I'm out of the ecosystem now. But when I when I was part of the labs, and that was the vision that was being worked on in Palo Alto, that was a really, really great concept because it helps with helps us with a lot of the the challenges that we have with AI. AI is a massively parallel problem, yep. um, and so you know the ability to have access to a, a large memory set and apply a lot of psych processes around. They're very simple processes, mm -hmm. um, is very, very key. So I think. I think there's, there still needs to be a lot of hardware advancement to actually drive true AI forward, and we're probably going to have to move away from things like von Neumann architectures to actually enable that. Mm -hmm. So, going back to robotics, I'm glad yeah, you yeah, brought yeah. that uh, topic. Uh, can you tell us what are the largest challenges you have, other than those that you mentioned in terms of vision and you know processing video? I think with the space that I'm in, so at the moment I'm I'm, I'm working more in the autonomous vehicle side mm -hmm. of robotics. I'm not in the robot arm type mm -hmm. thing. Most of the robots that I've been the, the the last few years I've been developing three series of robots. Um, they're kind of like either on road robots or they're semi on road robots on tracks or the robots that go around malls. Mm -hmm. um, so actually the control side is pretty well understood. Um, you know, if you've got a front-wheel drive, you can you can use Ackerman and Stevens. So actually, moving these things around is okay. The human relationship side, which again is very interesting to me, how robots interact with people, mm -hmm. either in a mall when it's walking around, or or on the. Um, we were I was built last year. I was building security robots in Singapore, which were going around things like reservoirs, mm -hmm. watching what was going, looking for people jumping in when they shouldn't be, trying to find out the relevant people to mm -hmm. be bringing in. And even you know, looking at the, the the autonomous vehicles are on the road, which is you know, how do we actually interact with with cars which are not autonomous? Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a very interesting area which needs a lot of it. So I think a lot of the challenges in the moment is around that interaction between man and machine, both on a just a, on a I would say a HMI level, but also on a systems level. And it'd be interesting to understand these days if you look inside a data center how much of the, the through traffic is actually machine to machine rather than human yep. to machine at the end. That's exactly what was going to be my next question. You are now, <coughs> or would like to study machine to human, but presumably once you learn that, you enable also machine to machine. Mm -hmm. For example, if you have robots and autonomous car, uh, you can probably pass some of the principles you're doing now on robots to autonomous vehicle field. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I mean, a lot of the challenges are the same. I mean, basically, I mean, there's a standard, there's a standard model for robotics, which is basically sentient and perception. Mm -hmm. There's HMI and goals. There's the there's the there's the there's the planning and control, and then there is the knowledge acquisition and the adaption and the learning. You know, it's like someone will tell you the state you want to be in. I want the car to be over here. The perception will tell you where the car is. The planning will tell you how to get mm -hmm. there, and the knowledge will basically tell you the best way to actually achieve those goals. So it's a, it's a, it's the same thing. Um, that you do is it's really about kind of like adaptive control um, and adaptive control with with learning. Um, there are some specific challenges when you look at autonomous vehicles because you need to be, develop fairly comprehensive real-time maps about what's happening around you mm -hmm. um, and those maps tend to be larger reaching than some of the robotic applications for example in factories if you look at um, like in, um, industry 4.0 factory of the future where you're inside an enclosed room mm -hmm. Um, the actual the breadth and the depth of the information that's coming past to be able to do, for example, velocity planning of cars coming across you and understanding what's actually going to happen mm -hmm. can be quite challenging. So there's a lot of aut autonomic vehicles, robots, etc. But they're still connected to the cloud. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me how do you perceive the current state of the cloud, where it's going, what is needed? Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been involved in the cloud for for, for many years. before it was the cloud, I was yeah. a, I was running a VP for managed service engineering at Exodus um, after I left HP the the, the, the first time, mm -hmm. and that was an interesting journey because I, I joined that company pretty much when the industry was going from everything on premise to Exodus as an ISP, which is basically connecting the premise to the internet points of presence, mm -hmm. and then. Everybody was saying, well, since you've got my point of presence down here, let's move the servers here. So we had co-location. And now we've got the servers here. Can you manage those servers for us? So we had managed services. And then we started to package applications on there. So you had package services like managed web hosting and you know, things like virtualization of the technology stack started to come into play. And then we started talking about using the spare capacity, making the more generally available cloud computing. And you know, the whole journey that you and I were on um, in the early 2000s when we were doing Open Cirrus yep. and uh, Open Cirrus together. So I think it's a continuation of that journey. I think we're, we're getting to a point now where, you know, we've been through the, through, the, through the virtual machines, we've been through the containers. We're kind of getting to a, an end point now where you can actually slice and dice at the logical level. A lot of the slicing and dicing will be at the lower levels now, which really is, is probably going to be in HP Enterprise's sweet spot mm -hmm. because of the role that you play inside the data centers. So I think there's, there's, there's that aspect. So I think the virtualization will start to come down. I think we'll start to see maybe more specialization in the way that data centers are designed. I think a lot of drivers for the cloud at the moment, with the exception, I would say, of, of the larger enterprises and businesses moving from premise to off-premise into the cloud and then having this, this thing in the middle, which is the, 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 the managed cloud or the, the, the virtual private cloud, if you like. Um, I think a lot of the sharing economy that's happening in the moment is driving a lot of the, 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 the adoption. Mm -hmm. I mean, cloud is really part of, the, part of the sharing economy. I think one of the important things we need to watch out for, and I know it's one of the key areas, uh, key areas of research of, of labs when I was here, was around the sustainability aspects of, um, of, of cloud computing. Mm -hmm. I and mean, that's, that's a big thing. I mean, we are pushing a lot of horsepower into these yep. data centers. The data centers are getting bigger and bigger. The, the energy utilization, you know, the things that are happening around the, the power and cooling of the, these, these data centers, the location of these data centers. I mean, it's, it's a big carbon output, yep. um, which is something that's very, I'm very passionate about, which is you know, key to, 
to my head at the moment. So I, I, I think in terms of technology trends, I think we're going we're gonna to see further, further adoption into the cloud. I think we're going to see more virtualization at the hardware and at the, the, the physical device level. I think we're going to see more and more of those interactions coming from kind of like shared economy, machine to machine, as more devices get connected onto mm -hmm. the shared economy. But I also see some fundamental challenges around data center design, architecture, and, lo and, and, and the localization of the data center based on the environmental challenges that we have. So you touch on sustainability, which is extremely important, but another aspect uh, is security. Mm -hmm. How do you find the distribution of endpoint security versus data center security or cloud security? And what do you think are the, the biggest challenges there? Um, there are always going to be bad actors in the world. I mean, no matter where you are, I mean, pre-cloud, pre there, there was always bad actors. Obviously, when you're opening things up and basically you're taking things out of your physical walls, um, you're, 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 you're inviting bad actors mm -hmm. to, to actually to come, to, to come out. I think there's, there's no points, solutions, point problems in security. I think you, know, you need to look at security from a holistic operational standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and under the Cloud Security Alliance, there's a lot of good work and go thinking about this. Um, you know, you can, you, we, can, we can ratchet down all the control points in terms of the data control points and the physical control points in the cloud, but you know, one bad actor, you know, one disgruntled employee going in there with the keys, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera. But I actually think you, know, you can look at that both ways. You may actually be safer in the cloud because a lot of the cloud service providers, their, bus their business is, is about keeping your data safe. Yeah. And sometimes with the specializations in terms of technologies and the staffing, the operational procedures that they're putting in place, your data is actually safer in the cloud than it is in your, in your own premise yeah. because you become, become more lax. So I think I mean, security is, is, a, is, a, is a critical architectural component when you're thinking about your strategy of moving from on-premise into the cloud. But it's not a one-off point thing. It's part of the overall journey. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that needs to be managed um, constantly. There are some technological aspects to cloud um, security. And there are a lot of good companies which are looking into that at the moment. But there's a lot of human factors as well yeah. are going to cloud security. But in summary, what you just said, because it's all standardized, it's much easier to apply governance. Well, because there are no one-off corner cutting of things that happen when you do it individually. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, switching gears completely, you are also um, very deep into startups, entrepreneurial mm -hmm. aspect. You yeah. founded two companies. You had Active Reasoning and another non-profit. Can you tell us about your experience in this? Yeah, I mean, it's, those are really good experiences. I mean, I, I founded Active Reasoning in 2002 when we had the dot-com fallout. I mean, basically mm -hmm. what happened was I was at Exodus. We were a casualty of, of, of the www.dogfood.com scenarios. And I founded Active Reasoning because I had access to a really cool piece of technology that one of my teams had built. So I, I spun it out from 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 cable and wireless, which is the entity that picked up picks up Exodus Communications, and it was actually interesting enough. It was a piece of um, security. Um, it was the who, what, why, where, when of the data center piece of mm -hmm. software, which you know a lot of people are looking at now in terms of the security incident event management. And so I, I set up um, Active Reason. That was my first true from the ground up mm -hmm. startup. I mean, I'd, I'd worked in a, in a couple of startups and, and, and Exodus being a, a larger startup at the time. But it was the first one that I actually founded with a co-founder of mine, Marv Sue, who's the chairman of Board of Plantronics. He was a CEO. I actually learned a lot um, 
I learned a lot of things. I was a, a European, been in the US for a few years. I'd been through the, the dot-com fallout. I picked up these pieces of technology. But I think the most, the most thing I'm most proud of of that particular thing was not so much the technology. It was at the time, um, there was a lot of engineers looking for jobs in the valley. So I had a group of engineers that were at Exodus who were about to be laid off. So I took those people, I took some more people, and during that whole you know, 2002 to 2007 when we sold the company, we actually brought those people through, we employed them, we gave them jobs, we, had, we paid their mortgages, we looked after their kids. And then in the acquiring company, we actually, most of the people, a lot of the people I, um, I employed there are still working for the acquiring company. So for me, that was the thing I was most proud of, not so much the end result, the, the monetary value, didn't actually make a lot of coin out of it. Um, my, my, my other one at the moment, the other startup that I'm running, my Max Maverick White Eye, that's a, a personal thing. I met a, a passion. passion. Yeah, passion is probably, probably a better word. I made a commitment to myself when I got to 50 that I would move more to nonprofit. Mm. And so it was one of the reasons why I left HP. I, left H, I handed off HP Lab, well, the Singapore Lab, um, at the end of October 2016, and I moved over to Thailand. Mm -hmm. um, very much into, into boxing, mixed martial arts. The nice. opportunity, a friend of mine, he wanted to go back to Thailand. He was a, a Muay Thai world champion, very well known there. Mm -hmm. And so I, I basically, I, I, I took some money and I opened up a, a Muay Thai gym in the south of Thailand. And the basic premise, I run it as, we run it as a non, I run it as a non-profit. And all of, the, all of the proceeds we give to animal welfare, which is something I'm very passionate. If you ever look at my Facebook feeds, I'm very passionate about the environment, but also animal welfare. And so what we do is we, we offer Muay Thai to Farang, as we call them, the foreigners who come in and they want to come and fight. So we train them up, we give them a fight, we take their money, we run our operations, and then we give the money to, to animal welfare. So that's my, it's my passion project. And probably what I'm going to be doing more of a time is moving towards that. But it, it really goes back to one thing I really believe in, which is the reason I, I stated innovation and technology is you know, I want to do something which has a positive impact on someone's yeah, life, yeah. whether it's through the technology, whether it's taking someone through mentoring up to, um, uh, through, through a, a technology career. But we need to be able to give back. When we're in the privileged positions that we're in, we, we are in, we need to be able to give back. Very noble, very yeah. noble. On the other spectrum of startups is governments. Mm -hmm. So you, you didn't shy away from working with Singapore's A-Star, Mimos Malaysia, and a number of others. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in working with government? Yeah, I mean, government, government are interesting actors for, for innovation. I mean, we, we were very um, privileged when we, when, we, when we set up HP Lab Singapore back in 2009 was when we were planning for it in 2010, when we opened it to get the support of, of, the, of the Singapore government, EDB, ASTAR, IDA, some of the organizations that you mentioned. I think government plays an important role. Um, I think government in, I was saying, in democratic, open countries that view innovation as open, government can play a, a, an important role. I'm not just showing closed countries where technology is used as a control point and it's not so open. I'm not going to mention some of those countries, but in open democratic countries like Singapore, um, you know, government has an important role to play. And the, the, the roles that they can play are in terms of support, obviously, not just financial support, but the whole ecosystem support which is what Singapore and Hong Kong and, and, and Malaysia and, 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 and other Asian companies that I've been working with recently provide you with. But also in the, in the guidelines, you know, how, how a government wants technology to play into the, the ecosystem and the growth and development of, 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 a, of, of, a, of a country. 
I don't like so much more of the controlling aspects when a government tries to control technology. So for example, one worrying trend I've started to see recently is is governments opening their own, for want of a better word, um, GovTechs, their government technology organizations, mm -hmm. where they hire people and they try to invent technologies, because I think that starts to interfere with the natural ecosystem. If I come in as, a, as an innovation company, country, company into your country, and I'm competing with the government, not just for talent, but for ideas, and I'm getting choked, et cetera, et cetera, I think it really defeats some of the openness purposes. But I think in terms of the, you know, the guidance and the, the, the support and the guidance aspects, I think government has a very important role to play. Changing the topic entirely again, I remember you were a patent coordinator in, mm -hmm. in HP at that time. Yeah. Can you tell us about the importance of patents? Yeah. How you do them, how you prove them, what are you looking for in a patent? Yeah, absolutely. I, patents are... are Protection of IP is, is very important. I think we, we, we all these days believe in open innovation. And part of open innovation is kind of like who knows, who's, knowing who's done what. And we, we basically, we stand on the shoulders of those below us yeah. and we support the people yeah. below us. So it's important to understand the investment that's being put into an idea and how those ideas are being carried forward. And at the moment, patents are one of the best ways we have of doing that. Now, Patents are very challenging, very difficult, they're costly, they take a long time, but I think it's, it's, you know, it's the legal framework that we have at the moment for understanding who did what when and who should have the control over that idea. So I think they're, they're, they are important. It's very difficult to, to work with. It takes a long time, a long, lot of investment and a lot of commitment on the, the organization that's, that's filing the patent. I, mean, I know you, you know this very well, that Dan, because you've got a, a very extensive patent portfolio. Um, so I, I think they are important. I think patents can be abused. Um, I think the best patents for me are the ones that are deep and have been proven, because I think then what you tend to find is there's something you can stand on, mm -hmm. and there's something you want to reference. There are a lot of, I would say, I mean, to be a little bit careful, I'll use the word frivolous patents that are mm -hmm. filed, which yep. are just architectural drawings. Let me throw this out there and patent it because I want to get some patent plaques, et cetera, et cetera. So the patents I really like and I find most useful other one of those people and find out how you can work with those organizations and also sub patents, reference the patents. I think patents that are just filed en masse for blocking are probably not so useful. Mm -hmm. But I think it's probably the best way we have at the moment for understanding the work that's happened before us and who we should thank and whose shoulders we should we should stand to make the world mm -hmm. better. Patents are one form of publication. They're also traditional, you know, scientific publication. You are a published author as yeah. well. You publish extensively in your early career. Can you tell us importance of publishing today? Yeah, I mean, counter to, I mean, you can look at, I mean, people look at patents as a way of, um, of, of protection. But I think, you know, publications are a way of validation. I mean, there's mm -hmm. nothing more rewarding in your career than when you get an article in a peer-reviewed journal, because mm -hmm. that really appears telling you this is something we accept, we understand, it's science, it's fact. So I think, you know, in terms of an innovator or, or a researcher, it's, it's important to publish in peer review, but also in, in any way where you can get your ideas across, where you can make a change. So you can publish anywhere. I mean, I know a lot of the prestigious research um, establishments like to publish in peer-reviewed. I actually like to publish in a lot of things. I mean, you know, whether I was a bit of a publicity whore when I was, when I was working for, for the lab in Singapore, I don't know, but I like working with the newspapers. I like working with the journals. I like, you know, advertising the work that we're doing because I think it's another validation point for the work that we're doing. But it's also a different way that um, your, 
the owning organization in terms of HP can actually see some of the value of what you're doing out there. You know, I think a lot of the value in a research organization is also on the marketing side. You know, so that someone can come in to HP, and, and I'm using HP Labs as an mm -hmm. example, to say, look, okay, I understand that this is an innovative corporation that I'm working with, and that there are people in the back room where I can go to and, and work with and forward the, forward the, take the ideas forward. So I think publishing's important. Um, and publishing, obviously, as you know, it's, 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 it can still be hard to get in a peer-reviewed journal, but it's, it's a lot easier than filing a patent. So I think it's yeah. for, for a researcher or an innovator, they're both important. One's good for, for, for legal protection, but the other one's good for recognition. After listening to you very carefully and, and being utterly impressed with everything you said, the only constant I can find in your journey is the change. Mm -hmm. What is your next change? <laughs> so I have, this, I have this saying, which is basically, you bought, you're born, you die, you're here, you don't know how much time you have left, make the most of it. Um, so I'm back in, I, I came back to um, Silicon Valley permanently, I came back in, in August. Um, I'm working in farming now, so I'm doing robotics in farming. Um, for a very interesting startup, um, startup in, 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 in the valley. Um, so I, I'm very interested in sustainability. I've talked about my animal welfare, I've talked mm -hmm. about the, the, the environmental, environmental impacts. When I came here 22 years ago, I was one of the biggest meat eaters around. And basically, if it moves, stick it on the barbecue. Mm -hmm. Now I'm a vegan. So in that 22 years, I've, I've been watching what's happening in the, in the food industry and I've completely changed. And so I'm, I'm spending more of my time now looking at how I can apply AI and robotics and, uh, in, in, in agriculture. So that's what I'm probably going to be spending the next couple of years on, and then we'll, 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 see, what, we'll, see, what, we'll see what's available after that. Amazing. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, Dianne. I really appreciate you taking the time. I hope you all enjoyed as much as I did and learned uh, as much as I did.